I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Mo. He has biliary artresia. Let's talk about it. Cool. Uh, well, then, uh, let's get right into it. I'm first of all, I, I, I this is not the first time we've met Mohit. Uh, right. however, it's the it's it, we we haven't met in person yet. Not uh, yet. <laughs> uh, if if the COVID gods are friendly to us in the next two or three years, maybe that will be a thing. Uh, but we've we've met uh, we've met digitally uh, a few times now. And uh, I'm really excited to kind of uh, have a moment to sit down and and dive into your story because although we've met in sort of similar circles where we are facilitating and engaging in conversation with folks who are within the sphere of, of like health and wellness and, uh, and sickness and death, um, we haven't really vows, gotten marriage to, vows. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> Forever and ever. <laughs> Amen. Um, uh, we haven't, we've never really gotten to hear I'm not so familiar with your backstory, aside from the fact that you do quite a bit of uh, patient advocacy work. And uh, I know that a lot of that was happening through Clubhouse and and other avenues. Um, But we never, like the three of us, never really got to dive into you and your story. And so I'm really glad that you're taking time Mm -hmm. out of your day today to share that with us, but not only us, all of our lovely listeners as well. So Mohit... Let's just start it off before we get into all the beautiful work you do as a as a human. What what landed you into this place in the first place? What 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 are you de- <laughs> what were you dealing with? What are you dealing with? Uh, what has affected you in your life in terms of your your health? Yeah, I mean, uh, thank you for that. I mean, I, I will say it's it's a relatively recent journey for me to speak about this more publicly. Um, you know, uh, I've, I've been very private about my health journey for a long time and, uh, and there's many reasons to it, which I'm sure we'll get into, but yeah, I, I was, I was born with a rare liver disease called biliary atresia and, um, biliary atresia is, is essentially, it's, it's this disease where your one of your bile ducts, essentially your, your common bile duct is either extremely narrowed or it's completely absent from your body. So bile ends up backing up into your liver and it ends up making your liver cirrhosed. Uh, but the other, the other, so obviously that's, that's highly dangerous. Yeah, that's, um, that sounds bad. There, there's a, there's a is. lot of, Mohit, there's a lot of words that you just said there that I'm familiar with and I feel like right. I should know, but I ca- yeah. kind of would like to dig into them a little bit more. Like, so yeah. your bile duct. I saw your yeah. eyes glaze over there. A little bit. Yeah, 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 they did. They just rolled right into yeah. the back of my head. <laughs> I heard you go. Duh, duh, duh. <laughs> I did. I did. It made that sound too. And uh, and so anyway, uh, your bile duct, bile in your body is is what I feel like I should know this, like but boogers of the liver. 
That's probably a good way to actually describe <laughs> yeah, it, right? Yeah, that kind of sounds like it might be. Mohit's nodding. I mean, about the same color, I guess. <laughs> so, so, okay, let's put it this way. You, got it, you have a lot of plumbing going on down there. Yeah. You got your liver's doing this really important job. What is it exactly that your liver does? Uh, everything. It's, it's, it's the factory, <laughs> right? So it is, and, and I appreciate you calling that out because it's, it is something that is, it's really important to make sure that none of these terms are, are necessarily new or, or completely just random, you know, mm. um, bile essentially it's, it's, and you know, I'll say this, I'm not a physician, I'm a liver patient. Right. Yeah. But, um, but bile essentially it's that, um, it's this greenish liquid that you're, liver creates that usually gets uh, stored in your gallbladder, right? But essentially what it does is it's supposed to enter your intestines to help um, break down the uh, the food uh, that's going through your intestines. And it's it's meant to help with the absorption. You know, a lot, oftentimes we think the stomach is where your body absorbs nutrients, but that's mostly a muscle. It's your intestines that absorb everything. So your bile is essentially the the, the kind of the acid. Um, actually, I don't even know if it's an acid, but you know, uh, I've always but thought of it as an acid. In my mind, it I looks think, and yeah. it looks and acts like I, one. But I've always thought bile is vile, and I've thought of it as mm. a, as like a negative thing right. because it like it just like disintegrates shit, like it just destroys. I feel like rhyming things you can but, really never go wrong. But yeah. also, <laughs> but but I also then I realize when I think that I'm like. Is is that just dumb though? Like, is that <laughs> well, it's used, right? It's, yeah, it's used yeah. in common language too. People mm-hmm. like like they say bile as if it's something that is meant to be totally bile. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, also like I, I like personally speaking, I've 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 I am very I'm very familiar with the act of vomiting and and especially through through coughing and when you cough to vomit, more often than not, you're you're throwing up long after you've had anything in you mm. and what comes up what i mean what i what i'm i'm pretty sure and louise if you're listening please <laughs> let me know it, when i throw up when there's nothing in me what comes out is bile and it does it, it does have like an acid look it looks like something that a uh, that like uh, you know the you know the dinosaur in Jurassic Park that that flicks out yes. it's like crazy yeah, things yeah. And spits into <laughs> Yes. Spits into um, uh, what's his name's face. Uh, I know what you mean. Uh, uh, Newman. Newman, Newman from Sa- Seinfeld. Right, yeah. yeah, it's it's kind of like what, it's kind of that. You know, it's like this nasty, like ugh, like yeah. ugh, vile, vile. But vile. it's actually what we're learning now. Really helpful. Yes, <laughs> very important. <laughs> Almost <laughs> necessary. But so so what was happening with you, Mohit, with your body is that your your bile was your bile duct was was fucky and it was sending it back into your liver where it shouldn't exist? It, well, it wasn't even sending it back. It just wasn't flowing out of my ah, liver. Okay, okay. Right. It wasn't even flowing out of my liver uh, because the pipe was extremely bottlenecked. You right? said cir- cirrhosis was it? And, and that's like scarring, is it? Basically. Yeah. It's, okay. it's, uh, it's scarring. And essentially a lot of times, you know, your, your liver it's such a, it's such a, it's so funny to use the word resilient, but it's such a resilient organ in the sense that it recovers itself. It repairs itself. It right? can like grow back um, up to like a it, certain, like if you cut yeah. a certain amount off, like a, like, like less than half, it can grow back or something. It grows back to its original size. That's why God, that's living organ donation exists. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I'm in touch with several other people who go through liver transplantation like myself and and one of them, um, he like his liver's 
grown back now after he donated part of his liver to his toddler daughter. Wow. And it's grown back to full size. That's crazy. And so does the one that you donate. It grows back. It grows into full size. Right. So you, you coming back to like, this this is, you, you had this when you were pretty young, right? This was like a early days in your life. How do it's you, a congenital disease, yeah. You're okay, born with it. okay. So you were born with it. When were you diagnosed? Is it like immediate or? It's supposed to be pretty immediate. Um, you know, I was I was born in the early '80s, so like uh, not to age myself, but I was born in the early '80s. So there was there was not as much known as there is today. Um, and at the time, you know, I'm from I'm born and raised in Montreal, and when you look at the data, it says, or when you look at any of the studies, whatever it is, it says. Uh, biliary treasure is typically diagnosed within the first, you know, month, let's say of age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's because you need to receive a life-saving procedure within the first two months of, of birth to be able to like reestablish that, that plumbing, mm-hmm. right. From your liver to your intestines. Mm-hmm. Um, but what ended up happening is, uh, and I'm, I'm actually very thankful because I, I don't know how many other people don't have access to this kind of info. I spent years trying to track down my medical records from when I was younger. And uh, I finally found like that random, you know, that random janky basement archivist that, that like had my files. And, um, and he was, and when he sent me like, first of all, medical files should be free, but they're not, they're, they're actually quite expensive. I 100% agree. Yeah. 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 You have to pay money for them. Oh yeah. That's you have to pay. Yeah. Okay. Kyla just, Kyla just paid. Up, up, whoever for her medical records the other day, and I, I was listening to that conversation on the phone. And I was going, "Whoa, what? It's information." Yeah. But about that happened you. to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's and that's the thing. That's the data phone. is free. It's the property that it's stored on that you have to pay for. Right. Uh, right. God, that's that's that's, a, that's the legalese BS. That's a bunch of malarkey. Yeah, that's um, uh, that's malarkey. If I ever heard it, of it's so interesting of- because when you say that, when you said that you had to go and like find find that data. I think immediately back to my, my, so my GP is if he's not retired already, he's basically working, but still is basically <laughs> retired. And, uh, he's, a, he's a really nice guy, but it's Brian almost has a impossible. doctor in theory. He's yeah. almost, it's almost impossible to get an appointment with him. He's only seeing like speaking to people on the telephone now. Like it's, it's just weird. And, um, and I think back to his office as a kid and I remember those manila envelopes with like the colored, stickers, like tabs with like letters going down them. And I remember every time I came in, there's just this file for me and I had never seen what was in it. I've, but now I wonder where is that? Like if I wanted to go back and try to understand, you know, like my medical history, how do I find that? Maybe try to call him, but like, where does that live once you, because we've heard a lot and we've heard a lot from people that we've spoken to on the show that there's no like unified medical rec- yeah. record or history for people. So like, and that's like problem. it's all of these bits and pieces that exist sort of. I think, I think the, I think the lesson here either. is that like when you, are, if you ever see that folder, just fucking grab, grab it, it and run, grab it, grab it and <laughs> run as fast as hey, you that's can. That's yours. Hide. It's hide, your data. Hide. It's free. It, yeah, and it's yeah. the Make property. It yours. Make it it's yours, the property. And where's the joint and start the but car. How did, but I want to ask Mohit, this was all to ask a question, which was, how did you go about tracking that down? And did you have to go to all these different mm. places to piece it together? 
Yeah, so so the data that I have is primarily from the hospital network that uh, I went through because that like I don't have all the data from like my pediatrician, from uh, all these other specialists unless they were directly from the hospital that I grew up in because and and that's another aspect of it. Most of my data exists from one registry, from one database because I spent the first 11 years of my life living in the Montreal Children's Hospital, mm. right? So I wasn't going from clinic to clinic. I was I was living in the actual hospital. Mm. And, and that's one of the things. So, you know, even back to your earlier point, like how long did it take to diagnose? Mine took longer because on the first sheet of my, of my medical records, when I finally got access to it, um, the admissions nurse at the ER uh, had to contact my pediatrician and write down what his notes were. And he actually, and he's the one who kept turning my parents away saying, newborns are all born with these, you know, with neonatal jaundice, just send them home, just go home, it's fine. And when they went there after several, several weeks and and actually more than two months of dealing with it, um, the first sheet of my medical record says, send these, send them home, these immigrant parents exaggerate their children's health. Oh, wow. That's what it actually says on the first sheet of my form because she wrote it down and I'm thankful she did to document that. So so this life-saving procedure that you're supposed to receive called a Kasai, um, which is just, you know, they take a piece of your intestines and plug it into your liver to your intestines. Basically, that's it, right? It's just to reestablish plumbing. That's it. No, I mean, that's yeah. it. It's, it's pretty simple. That's they it, just, right? They just <laughs> carve your intestine and then yeah, rewire it. it to another part of your body where it shouldn't your be. Miniature. Just that. Your that's miniature. Your miniature in the miniature yeah, version yeah, of everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's basically it. It's so fucking wild, though. But that, you're supposed to get that within eight weeks. I got yeah. that within eight. I got that at 18 weeks. So, um, so you're saying life-saving. Like, is, is this a... Yeah. Is is biliary artresia? Did I pronounce that right? Is bil- biliary artresia? Atresia. Atresia. Biliary yeah. atresia. It, it's it's fatal. It's it like if you, what's what is the? Because you like you said, Mohit, you you did age yourself. You were born in the early eighties, and look at you now. You're 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 killing it. You look healthy. Thank you. I mean, how, what's the like if if a baby is diagnosed with this? Are they? As long as they get that treatment, are they basically told like, okay, your baby should be okay now? Or is it like they need this, they, they need this. And then it's kind of fin- cross your fingers because it's, it's all up in the air with, with biliary atresia. That sounds like a high school atresia. bully. <coughs> atresia. Biliary atresia. That sounds like a high school bully. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. Yeah. Does it? <laughs> yeah. It's because like you, that's because a, a boy named Billy bullied you. Bullied you. That's, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, basically. <clears throat> It's true, but um, no, the um, it, it it is it is still um, life threatening. The the I don't know the the most recent stats, um, but it does. If you don't receive that that first operation uh, at a, as a toddler, um, it does have a high mortality rate. Oh. And even if you receive it, I believe the most recent stats I, I saw said something within. Uh, it's still like a eighty percent chance that you'll still require a liver transplant uh, within the first like ten to twenty years of your life. Oh shit. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. So you get this at so so the the ideal scenario is that you get this within like a month to two months of being born. And instead you get this in like when you're five or five to six months old. And what is the so does that just does that delay in getting this procedure just just like compound the 
just compound the problem that is developing within you as you like, you know, the further you, the further along you go without getting this procedure done and being treated for, for this is like, is it like setting you up for, for preventable, uh, preventable long-term, uh, down the road issues that might've been remediated if you had gotten this, uh, treatment when you were supposed to, when you, when you, when you should have. I mean, it's, it's hard to tell, right? Because, because it, you know, it's, it's funny and, and I'll just, I'll, I'll um, give like a bit of a sidebar, but it's funny to call it a rare disease because when you speak with um, hepatologists, liver, liver doctors, it, it's the most common reason for pediatric liver transplantation, hmm. but it still impacts one in every, what, 15 to 20,000 newborns, right? Hmm. Um, but it's, it's hard to, it's, it's hard for me to answer that, but I will say it's, it delays the it delays the impact of what biliary atresia does to your body and this is going back to even the original thing like well what what does your liver even do because it does so much your liver is essentially the the foundation for so much of your baseline health when you're not absorbing nutrients when you're not when you're not feeling well for so many reasons a lot of times there's some kind of underlying liver issues but you know, oftentimes we don't even know that we have um, an issue with our liver unless we actually go through like a, a biopsy, right? Like they, they inject a needle into you and take a piece of your liver out. Well, so man, so for me... I, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but I just know exactly what that is like because I have a 1981 Volkswagen Westphalia camper van mm. and I had to that do so much work on it for two years and I couldn't figure out... We could never figure out what the problem was. Never figure out what the problem was. Finally, right. turns out we we put a scope down into the fuel tank, rusted fuel tank that was causing all of the problems all along. That was such a good parallel. Rust into the gas, which was that causing was your liver. The, your car's liver. Exactly, yeah, it was causing yeah. the fuel injectors to misfire, yeah. and uh, and I, yeah, yeah, it's a miserable. Did they check experience. your fuel injectors? <laughs> <laughs> did, they, did, they, did they check that? <laughs> Eventually, <laughs> so, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but carry on. No, 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 no. It, it's a, it's a perfect. It's, it's, it's actually a perfect example, just to kind of relate. Yes. You know how something, how something can impact the overall health of, of your, your, your vehicle, right? Your car. Yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah. Thanks for, um, thanks for working although, with me there. Although Brian, I'm, I'm 82, not 81. Just saying, so I'm a little bit younger <laughs> right. than your right. Just, sorry, sorry. <laughs> uh, I, So I, you know, I, I, this is, this is making me think about how, um, you know, someone born with a, with a rare disease early in life, uh, a disease that I'm guessing based on what you've said so far, there's no like cure for this, right? No, there's no, there's no cure. And still to this day, there's actually no um, known cause. Oh, They're wow. still studying it. Right. So wow. there, there's, there's a lot that they, that they suspect wow. there, there's, there's some promising studies that, that connected to, to different genes, right. um, you know, but, but there's still no, proven cause and yeah there's no cure so really the only way is I, I i'm still trying to find the best language and i've spoken to i always speak with different doctors um because oftentimes you speak with one they might have one answer or one word one form of using language but the way to like remove it from your body is to remove the liver right so you have to get a liver transplant uh, so if you no got cure. if you got a liver transplant, are you are you kind of like because I'm I'm thinking about cystic fibrosis, 
when I think yeah. about this disease and, and sort mm-hmm. of comparing them the two. And like, I know that if I got a lung transplant, if I needed it and, and the transplant, let's just say the transplant went well, I'm still going to have CF, but those new lungs that I have are going to be pretty, pretty bitching for, you know, like, but isn't it that your lungs years. won't have CF? Like your the body lungs, will have it, but your lungs yeah, won't. Something yeah, like something, that? something like that. Like, yeah, exactly. But they're they're still susceptible to infection. Sure. If if you get your liver replaced, does your body no longer have biliary artresia? Atresia. Why atresia. the fuck do I? Uh, <laughs> it's word? a hard word, man. It is. It is. Uh, <laughs> it, the new liver does it kind of like scrub out the biliary atresia in, in your life, or or is it like you have this new liver? Give it five years and it'll start to fuck up on you again. So if all is well, it it completely removes that issue. But then you're, you know, you're an immunosuppressed, heavily immunosuppressed person like myself because you're on anti-rejections. But there but it also depends on the way that the um, that the liver transplant was done, because I know people firsthand who I've met through the process of what their journeys are, who the duct that was received from the the donor, whether living or deceased, Mm. um, might have not been the proper fit, or there's something else Mm. abnormal that happens in that flow. But the, but the original condition is, is removed from your body because it's more of a mechanical thing. Right. right. This is kind of reminding um, me of uh, when I worked in uh, real estate and I was doing home inspections when houses were on municipal Jesus services. Christ, Brian. I got a lot of good analogies. This is this, you guys. overwhelming. Uh, also, you have like a, the longest resume. I'm just like, <laughs> you have so much to, to drop on. Well, well, that's well, such a positive way of seeing this, Mohit. It is. <laughs> Mohit, you and I should talk about doing a podcast together. Um, I, but, but actually, this is a, I feel like this is another good analogy. I, I'm thinking of this as like your liver as the house and the uh, biliary biliary duct as like the sewage system that goes out to the municipal services. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's and, a great example. Yeah. And what I'm imagining is that we, we used to do these septic line inspections or, uh, or, um, lateral line inspections where we'd put another snake down into this pipe, check it out. If it was all fucked up, exactly. we'd have to come in and dig it all up and replace the pipe. Right. And so I'm imagining that when coming to your example, Jared, of like, Oh, can you just replace it and it go away? Well, it it must depend on whether or not that duct can actually be fitted properly because if you're going in with like one lateral line sewage pipe that's one size and you try to cut that out and you try to attach it with another one that doesn't quite fit and it rejects, then you're going to have poop all over the place, mm. like all over the ground yeah. and shit, Riveting. which in this case would be like like the bile Right. backing mm-hmm. up into your body, which could be, I imagine, be very dangerous. Yeah, Brian doesn't do real estate anymore, but if but if you if you want to <laughs> if you want to ask him some questions, you can always uh, you can always hit him up. How is that analogy, Mo? That, that that's actually perfect, to be honest. I mean, it really is plumbing, and and oftentimes you'll hear this in like you know medical dramas or whatnot, where where they're doing like on the episodes where they do organ donation. Um, oftentimes it's heart, which is interesting on, on these medical mm-hmm. dramas, but it's, you'll often hear them talk about the fact that the, you know, the ventricle or this, or that, like something doesn't fit. That's mm-hmm. what they're talking about. They're talking about the fact that the person who's receiving it and the person who's, um, giving it, it might not always fit. And there's, right. there's many reasons for that, which right. is just a whole technical thing that I'll leave to the surgeons. But yeah, whenever right. whenever we talk about like whenever we talk about congenital stuff, I'm always um, 
And I know you said, Mohit, that they're not really like, they're not really sure. <laughs> there's probably, you know, the, the assumption is that there's, there's something, there's something genetic in it. Um, and I start to think about the craziness of, of the future of like, you know, you're born in the early eighties. You're born, you guys are born in the late eighties. I was born in nineties. So like, but now, like now, like, I wonder about, I wonder about like kids who are being born now or in the next, especially in the next like 10 years with something like CF or something like biliary artresia. And like, like, will the, I, I wonder like if the, if the cure, because there's no cure now for either of these things, other than like, you know, you, there's a, there's a, there's a surgery, there's a surgery for you that sort of treats it. There's like medication for you that's really inaccessible. Like CRISPR being something mm. where you, where you go in and you don't have to, like, you don't have to say, oh, you don't have to see genetically that your embryo has a problem and, and you don't have the embryo. You, you go, we're going to not, we're going to not take the piece that's going to make this child sick, which is crazy. Yeah. I mean, not to make another Jurassic Park uh, um, <laughs> you just watched comparison, but I just watched night. it last night. <laughs> uh, but uh, Jeff Goldblum, his whole character is like he genetic. Don't do like, that. No, oh. no, he's like chaos theory, and he's, he's oh. all about like how life. Oh, really? Do you don't don't try to alter life, or else it'll it'll come back and bite in the in the in the balls, mm. and yeah. then and then and and then the T Rex escapes. But uh, <laughs> I, I do. I, I, I want to come back to the 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 point when we were actually getting to when you um, first got in to see a doctor because. You you yeah. mentioned that your parents had brought you in a number of times, and at eighteen weeks they they finally saw you. Like what at what like what was happening in your body at that time, and what was it like for your parents at least getting that diagnosis to find out what you were dealing with? Yeah, I've I've actually had quite a few conversations with my parents, more specifically my mother, uh, about this. It's, I mean they were terrified. And, and the reason why my, I'm very thankful that, you know, my, my mother, like, like and she, this is also the way that she raised me as an activist, you know? Uh, but she was like, no, F this doctor. Uh, I need to go to someone else who is actually going to listen because she was giving me a bath and like a spoonful of yellow jelly fell out of my eyes. Whoa. And she's like, Nope, this jaundice what? is out of hand. Oh yeah. God, Whoa. And just knowing, one, the feeling of knowing that it's not, you know, quote unquote, in your head, the feeling mm -hmm. that you're not making this up, that you're not exaggerating, that your intuition is correct, is huge. Mm -hmm. um, so it's scary, but at the same time, it's a relief to know that, okay, is there something we can do? But then there's the scare, there, there, there's a scary aspect that comes later on saying, oh, but this is a rare disease and we actually don't know too much about it. And in Quebec, they were not really doing transplants at the time. Uh, mm. They didn't even know that that was an option at the time. Wow, you know, wow. They didn't realize that till years later. Mm. Um, so, so what it was, what, what was there like, because uh, Taylor was kind of um, uh, alluding to this a little bit earlier, asking like what sort of, what are, what are the impacts of not getting seen in those first couple of months that are so important? Like what was happening to you at that time in your body, like, was there long or were there effects that were sort of like irreversible or, or even showing up after that 18 weeks, like the, like you just said, that spoonful of yellow jelly coming out of your eyes, like was, what was happening yeah. in your body at the time that you had to go and get immediately treated for? 
Yeah, um, and that's that that's that goes to show the importance of of the liver and bile because a lot was happening. So when mm-hmm. when bile does not enter your intestines, you you become very malnourished, um, extremely malnourished. So you don't have enough uh, nutritional absorbency, vitamin absorbency. Uh, you develop bone deficiencies. So I I, I or uh, the bone deficiency. So I ended up having um, rickets. I was bow legged. Uh, there was so many things, you know, like you, you look at me today, you're like, unless I were to tell you something's going on, you would not have an idea that this was my entire childhood. And I don't mean a portion of it. I mean, I was, I, I spent more time. I spent time in the hospital before I actually made my first friend outside of the hospital. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but that's what's going on in your body. You, you become extremely nourished. You're not able to, um, you're not able to feed properly. You're not able to, uh, you know, poo or pee properly. Uh, nothing, nothing is, nothing in your body is kind of going right mm. at that time. That that uh, that note there about how how much time you spent in the hospital as a child, like I, that was one of the things that I was wondering about when when I was thinking about the similarities between this what what you have in, in cystic fibrosis, and I. I, I would like to kind of unpack that a little bit more. Like you, uh, obviously, from what you just said, you've you've spent quite a bit of time in and out of the hospital throughout your childhood. Um, what like what socially? What was that like? Like how, like like I f- I feel. Would it be too far to say that you that that you, like you your childhood was kind of stripped away from you because of your disease, or like what was life growing up for you in in terms of trying to deal with this? Yeah, uh, it's um, it would be absolutely correct to say that it was uh, stripped away, and, and and it's and I say this I don't say this um, lightly. Um, and, and actually, just because you mentioned the parallel with uh, also with CF, you know, the, the 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 kind of the first, you know, friend, the, the longest friend that I had that lived with me at the Montreal Children's Hospital was a CF patient. No, no way. Um, and uh, oddly enough, our families actually lived pretty nearby to each other. Hmm. Um, so uh, I ended up becoming like her, her younger brother's um, big brother um, when we unfortunately lost her. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, I'm going to do my best to like, keep it together. I'm, you know, uh, but because this mm-hmm. is something that, like I said, it's, it's, it's more recent that I've been sharing this stuff more publicly. Mm-hmm. And it is something that really surfaces in a very, in a very strong way. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's not an exaggeration to say that the heavy majority of the first 11 years of my life were as an inpatient um, and the time that I was not living and an inpatient for those who are not familiar, like you live in the hospital and the times that I was not living in the hospital, it was daily commutes to appointments and the suburb that my family's from to the hospital, you could have two appointments in the middle of the day, but it would take you two hours to commute just to get there by public transit. And, um, it's difficult when you don't know what it's like to have friends, to feel like you belong anywhere. And even in the hospital, I didn't realize this language later on, but I just knew something was different. And uh, and it's because even in the hospital, I was often not included in some of these things because I was also a brown patient, right? Mm. So I was excluded 
um, an outcast for two colors, my brown skin and my yellow eyes. When I was allowed to go to school, um, there's actually this old newspaper article that we ref- that my, that my mom found in like a box randomly um, that they did in like a, a local paper. And it was me saying, yeah, the kids call me alien um, because of my yellow eyes. They did not want to sit next to me uh, the few days that I was allowed to go to school. So even in the school, even for like a school bus, uh, no one would sit next to me. The parents complained. So they, they put me on the small school bus, right? And, um, and we, we all know the stigmas that especially came in the yeah. past with, you know, with the small school. And then a lot of, a lot of the parents, you know, of the, of the, um, you know, the neurodiverse students that were on the small school bus, they complained. So they put me on a small school bus of my own just to go to school. Oh. Uh, I was, I was treated like Hannibal Lecter, you know what I mean? Mm. And it's, it's really, it's really challenging when you're going through this, uh, socially, and there's so much, there's so many layers to that. There's also the, the aspect of like when you're not in school, but yet for whatever reason, they think that it's okay that they'll just pass you on each grade to each grade and you actually right. don't receive a base education. Right. But socially, you, the few times that you're allowed to interact with people, you're treated quote unquote special and special in the sense that you're told like every kid like oh you're a special kid but not in a good way you're treated in a way where you're supposed to be treated like you're in a bubble and that's not a good feeling right so like now later on as we get older we're like we're always told like the best advice is to just like stand out stand out like use like like in, embrace this this misfit culture that that you're a part of but when you're when you're a kid you just really want to fit in Mm-hmm. You just want to be like, you want to feel like you're, you, you're part of the assembly line because you've never known what it feels like to actually have someone treat you like a friend and not say, oh my gosh, is this okay? Can I do this? Or point and laugh at you and call you an alien, mm-hmm. you know, or call you a racist, uh, you know, term because you're brown, like whatever it is, it's really difficult socially when your best friends are, you know, Quebecois nurses and you're like, oh, you're, yeah. you're like my mom's age. Right. Or it's that little TV that like cranks out of the wall and only plays Habs games. Well, for an English speaking Montreal or Habs games or Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which I'm very, very closely tied to because it honestly was my entire life. Yeah, it saved me. Yeah. I, I, Mohit, I mean, that is, uh, there's no, there's not really much way to sugarcoat it. That is absolutely fucking heartbreaking mm. to, to hear that. Um, but in the exact same vein, I am this way and you guys know I'm this way and and I and I I kind of have to imagine that you are too knowing you now and especially knowing that that our first meeting what Jer mentioned at the beginning was you know via Clubhouse and we were talking on resiliency and healthcare and um I, clearly there is a a massive amount of resiliency in in built built into you and I am from hearing what is what is like no doubt heartbreaking and and horrible that you had to go through that. Where do you get, where do you become you within that? Because like, that's such a challenge to go through that. Yeah. And then you, and then, <clears throat> I mean, there's clearly something, there's clearly things that you were able to look to and take from that. So I guess like I'm, I'm wondering in the moment when you're going through that, like, 
as a child, especially how, how aware, how aware are you at that time of like really what is happening? Like the, the, like the racial component and the discrimination in terms of, you know, what you're dealing with in terms of your health, like, is there an awareness or is this something that, or is that something that comes later and you kind of learn and grow from later? Like how, how, where does your resiliency come from? Like, is it instilled in you and your parents? Does it come from the, some people you know in the medical, in the healthcare system? Like, where does this come from? Because clearly you've got lots of it and you've been through so much. No, I, pre- I appreciate that. And, and I will say, going through that, um, you feel it before you understand it. Yeah. yeah. Right? That's so trauma, I, you know, like you're, you're feeling yeah. trauma. Mm. And yeah. oftentimes people going through trauma can't, you can, you don't recognize that you're, it's trauma until way fucking later. You know, you, it's, you're what you, what you just described was it, like, that is a traumatic childhood experience. It is. And, and I was also, you know, because my parents were so afraid for my health and, and this, this is the trauma that they went through too, because they kept being told, okay, your, your son is going to, he has like another few months. He has another year maybe of, to, to live. So like, they're always expecting, like, it's always a celebration if I wake up. But at the same time, there's this weird, you know, other side of it where anyone who's gone through this, or especially with someone who's, who's gone through like long-term care uh, facilities or anything where there's also like this weird, like, when will it just happen? you know what I mean? Type of feeling that you never want to admit, you know, but I think, um, I, I felt a lot of it. And also my parents were trying to isolate me. So they were not telling me a lot of the information of what was going on, but I knew it because oftentimes you're in these doctor's appointments and like, they're talking about you as if you're not there and as if you don't understand the language. Yeah. But I'm also like a, I grew up as kind of like a, I call it an English to English translator because my, my parents spoke fluent English before they ever moved to Montreal. Uh, my parents are from India, from Punjab, but I'm in, I'm in this hospital appointment where, and it's a, it's an English hospital, but oftentimes you're still dealing with, with Quebecois uh, physicians or healthcare professionals. So y- everyone's speaking English, but someone else is speaking English as a second language from learning French first. And someone else is speaking English from understanding Punjabi first. And then, so there's like keywords. So even though they're talking about me and I'm still translating for them, they're still not talking to me. They're talking through me oftentimes. Mm. So I'm not allowed to have that opinion. Right. But when you spend so much time in a hospital room, um, where you don't have anyone to talk to, maybe just people who are much older than you, replacement parents in a way. You have white walls and machines connected to you. And you have people talking about you around you. You think a lot. You become very philosophical. So, so you end up understanding it more. Um, and as I got older, I started to understand it a little bit more. I, I started to understand it more through speaking with, to be honest, it was actually originally through religious leaders. Um, because they were often, even though I'm not really quite religious, it was, it was something that was sent to me often to prepare me for my transition. Mm. So they would often talk to me and I didn't fully believe what they were saying, but what they said, I took it with me and I thought about it afterwards, Mm. right? Why did they say this? What does this mean? And a lot of it, I know it's going to sound silly, but a lot of it was fresh prints, man. I'm not going to lie to you. (laughs) A lot of it was like, I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like, Like, I felt like Will Smith was like the first actual friend that I had 
Like yeah. he was kind of like my, my savior in those moments because it was the only form of hope that I had. It was someone else who was that whole fish out of water perspective. And, and, you know, I grew up, I grew up in hip hop. So it was like, it was someone who I could just relate to, who was such a fish out of water, who, despite the lack of, you know, quote unquote etiquette, the lack of the, the higher education, the lack of all these things, his charisma was able to bring him to anything. Yeah. And that's what gave me a lot of it. And my parents, for sure. But I will say this as a final point to that, to that question, Taylor, like, for me, it's also my I'm going to channel Snoop Dogg right now. I also want to thank myself, right? Like it's, it's something that I had to build a lot for myself and I'm not going to take that credit away. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was due to others, but it was a lot that was just due to me having to learn how to be me, mm-hmm. you know? What's it, like, uh, go ahead, Tay. I was just going to, I was just going to comment on how, like as you were saying that and talking about Fresh Prince, I was like, "Oh shit!" Like I was, I, I, I was, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't old enough to really like see the or like hear those messages clearly in in Fresh Prince when I was watching it. I just wasn't like my, just, I wasn't old enough to understand the like to to like really to really see those the deeper messages. meaning in the stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now that you're saying, it, I'm like, "Oh yeah!" Like, yeah. <laughs> like hearing that, I'm going, "Oh shit!" That's that's so, that's so, that's so fantastic. Especially when you live in a time where you feel like, where you feel like it seems like just now we're waking up to like, to, to more, to more like kind of social justice things in the way that, in the way that people have been treated and represented, whether it's their skin color or their religious background or whatever it is and going, oh man, and then there was this show in the nineties that was doing that. And it seemed like I they never got even, it. and I didn't even, and I didn't even know because I was too young to know. But you know, it's just really cool. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. I wanted to um, ask Mohit about because you, you've mentioned a couple times now that you've only really started talking about this in the last uh, few years and to he- like charisma uh, charismatic is one word that I would use to, to describe you and the interactions that we have. I feel like you're, you're very approachable, well-spoken um, and hearing your story today about the, the, the trials and tribulations of your, your early life. Uh, like uh, that question that Taylor asked about resilience, it really, it's something I was really curious about because it it does seem like you've you've come a long way since those days, but knowing that it's only been recently that you've been talking about this, where does that transition happen? Where you start to like being somebody who's who's philosophical and and a thinker and spending so much time in a hospital, you know, contemplating these ideas and your situation, and then then finally starting to be comfortable you know, sharing that story with others and the things that you've learned during that time, 
how does that transition occur? Uh, it, it took, it took years to be honest. It took years of me thinking to make that transition to, to, to actually do it. Mm. Um, oddly enough, it actually started, it, it had nothing to do with my health in the beginning. It started with me wanting to start using my actual name. I used to go by the nickname Mo for the longest time in my life. Mm. Uh, and I completely removed that from my life many years ago. Uh, but it started with that. And just the moment I started hearing people call me Mohit, um, it felt like this weird hug, you know what I mean? It just felt like, oh my gosh, you you actually like Mo was the name that was given to me by others in my in my uh, community during the few days that I was allowed to go to school. Mm-hmm. But it was like oh, they want me to fit in. Oh, that's what they're gonna call me. I'll just go with it, right? That's my my entryway. But Mo was a facade, and as I started being a little bit more me, um, I I always knew that I wanted to do more public. Um, activism or uh, advocacy work or uh, mostly around health that I've always been involved with some form of like social justice and and, uh, gender equity in the past. But it was, it was something that it actually happened during the doctor's appointment. Um, I see my liver specialist maybe once every like year and a half. And we were just having an appointment. And, you know, for those who don't know, like Toronto has, I'm not sure if it's the biggest or one, but definitely one of the biggest like transplant programs in the world. Mm. And so there's a certain there's a certain trust you have in the team that you deal with there. And um, we were speaking, I always ask a certain set of questions and it's the same set of questions I'll always ask to see if I'm like, you know, if they're trying to impress their resident or their, you know, their fellow or whatever it is, who's in the room. uh, And just to see who's going to answer differently. And I was asking, well, how long can I expect to live? And just that one question, it sounds like such a loaded question, right? But the typical answer is, well, you're going to tell us right? Because the liver is so resilient. It's this, it's that. But one thing that I heard that I had never heard before, uh, and I followed up with it to check on it, was when you look at the data, not saying it doesn't exist, but it's, but when you're trying to find data to show someone who was born with biliary atresia, who's had a liver transplant, who survived, you know, well after 30 years post-transplant, there are people but it's it's not a it's not a big amount, right? It's it's not a large quantity, um, and who are still living healthy, very healthy, uh, but also who are not white. That data is not really existent. It's it's not really there's not really much to to go on there, and if there is, we don't really know about. Like who else is talking about this stuff, right? Mm. Um, and it just it it just I knew it was something that just sparked. I didn't even have to think about it. It just sparked something in me, and I said all this stuff that I'm doing privately, all these people who I've been reaching out to privately uh, to help them and their families through their journey. I, I need to, I need to help. And it's not giving a voice to the voiceless as so many people have heard. It's because everyone in, in that way has a, a, you know, a voice. It's about turning up the volume and making sure that everyone else can learn how to listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When did, when did you get your transplant? On my 11th birthday. On on the day and the minute of my birth. Wow, um, really? Yeah. And so my, my transplant was like a long one, but the moment they wrote as the end time is the same moment, is the same minute on my, my uh, birth record. Wow. It's exactly 11 years later. Yeah. So that's wild. Uh, you were 11 years old. How old are you now? You're... you're 39. I, that's, I think that's the first time I said it. I just turned 39. You, you did. You said it. You, Congratulations. You said it the first yeah, time I thank you. We know, folks. Now we know. So I'm 28 uh, years post-transplant. 28 years? How? Jesus wow. Christ. Is that normal? Like how long? 
are are liver transplants like infinite time? Like once you get a new liver, they're like you're good to go. Like that seems like a long time for a, for a organ to it is keep long, on ticking yeah. inside a person. Yeah, I mean it's not un- it's not impossible. I've I've met a few people who are post thirty years transplant, right. um, but but every organ that you receive has a uh, a thing called a half life. Mm-hmm. which is at that half-life for each organ, it's when 50% of the people are either in decreasing uh, health or they're no longer with us, unfortunately. And then the other 50% are, are doing, they're steady, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the half-life for a liver is 15 years. Wow. Um, okay. So usually by 15 to 20-ish years, you're usually on your second transplant because you can receive uh, multiple transplants yeah, after yeah. your first. Right? So how's your, how's your, I mean, almost almost 30 years out, how's your... How's your second liver doing? My, my, it's my, well, it's, it's, yeah, my second, the, the, the first liver transplant, yeah. but yeah, um, it's, I'm, I'm rock solid, man. Like, honestly, I'm very yeah. blessed to say that. Like I haven't had to change my, my anti-rejection, the immunosuppressant uh, medication dosage for, it's been over 15 years now. Wow. So you're always on it. Oh yeah, you're on it for life. You're oh, crazy! Yeah. I, I didn't, didn't know yeah. that. I didn't know that. Either. I always thought that it was like a, <clears throat> you know, like until we know it sticks. Like yeah, that's yeah. Uh, you know, I that's Good. what I always I, thought. I didn't yeah. know that. It's it's wild that over because isn't it that your body replaces every cell in it every seven years? Something like that. Yeah. Like it's it's crazy that it doesn't like after some point in time go all right it's not this like, is all right like, like it's we been 30 years it's been yeah. so long now you're officially yeah. a part of the fam <laughs> yeah. Yeah. right yeah yeah because your, your liver got screeched in because usually when uh <laughs> when we would do lateral line replacements on oh, real estate properties oh, so geez. i mean they would stick in shush um i i do i you know we we, we kind of hit on it there but i do want to talk about the 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 advocacy work that you do now um uh, you know, the, and which is not, which is not all that you do. Um, you are, you're, you're, you're quite like an entrepreneur. Uh, why don't you just g- give us, give our listeners a little I- insight into what you do for on a day-to-day basis and then, and then how you utilize the work that you do as a sort of speaker box to, to enhance your, your advocacy. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause, cause what I do, um, Shoot, man. I don't know if my, my, if my, I guess maybe my parents will get a better idea because they still don't understand what I do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because, because I started my career in the music industry, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's why it's even there, it didn't really make sense what I did because I started as an audio engineer. Then I got into the business side of music and started working in music marketing for labels. And then got into like A&R and road management. Like I became a bit of a generalist, right? You, you end up doing a lot of what you do. Uh, or what you have to do in the moment. Uh, and a lot, most of my career was in the U.S. music industry. So I, I got my chance to tour uh, with some amazing people. And to me, it was always like, this is what I get to do from living in the hospital yeah. room to like, yeah. but and in, the, in a weird way, it felt comfortable to have that alone time in a, in a hotel because I'm so used to that alone time. It's a, it's a safe space for me, right? Um, but yeah, I got into all that. Then I kind of, you know, I started my own business. I was doing marketing. Long story short, I do a bu- I did a bunch of random stuff. I even did like productivity consulting. Like, well, I don't even know how to explain what that is. But you I did. I had a yeah. long resume. Yeah, I was like, Jeez. you got a resume. <laughs> like, like, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Like, I was consulting businesses on how to use Evernote. Like, like, what even is that? But, but a lot of a lot of what I do now. Um, 
for the past several years, I've been doing, I, I won't lie, the way I actually got into it was by just paying myself and just doing a lot of free work. I started doing it by doing a lot of free work, working with as many charities and not-for-profits as I could and joining as many um, like hospital patient committees as I could because I always wanted to start a not-for-profit. But I, I did not want to start something with such an uphill battle. I wanted to figure out who was doing it, same way I got into the music industry, start by working at a major label and then figure out how does the system do it? And then how can I work to like indie, like indie artists, right? Indie labels. Mm. So I wanted to work a lot with these, with these not-for-profits to understand what is being done? What are the, what are the structures that they go through, but also what are the broken pieces? Right. Um, And so from that, and I still do a lot of that, but I got into a little bit of um, advisory and consulting work, helping, um, different um, organizations change the way that they do patient engagement. Mm. Uh, so I do a little bit of that, but a lot of a lot of what I'm, you know, I still do a little bit of business consulting in the meantime. You know, it's it's what my my core has always been. Um, but a lot of what I do now is, like you said, it's it's the it's the advocacy work through like this speaker box and like Clubhouse actually came at the perfect time for me mm. because I was doing a lot of these kinds of conversations um, offline before it. And then when when the pandemic hit, it kind of shut everything down. We couldn't meet in person. And Zoom is not the same, right? No, a lot of no. times when you're doing these kinds of like patient engagement groups, there, there's, there's a certain level of like hesitancy that you receive over the video. But I was never, I, I was early on Twitter. I was early on Instagram and all these platforms, but they never, they were never like, my platform yeah because twitter became over overloaded with politics and just division instagram i'm not someone who likes taking photos or selfies of of like myself Mm. right um but clubhouse was this amazing opportunity to be like it was the first time where i was like you could be you can actually be a whole person you yeah, could be like yeah, a yeah, multi-layered yeah. complex person. I could and, jump into room. And just 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 for the folks listening who might not, because it is still kind of new relatively, who might not be aware of what Clubhouse is. Can you just give a little quick like yeah, breakdown of like what point. is Clubhouse and 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 you know its place right now in the in the sphere of social media? Yeah, that's a great call out. Um the best way to describe it, it is it's a social audio app that allows you to have uh, any conversation in the moment. Some people have compared it to, uh, you know, I guess back in the day, even before my time, there were things called party lines. Some people call it that. Some people say it's like a 24-hour conference, but you have the opportunity of joining the conference. So the audience has that engagement. And some people say it's like a podcast with live audio interaction. Mm-hmm. So it's all those things combined, but basically a live conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Through audio. And it's, there's, although it sounds so simple, it, there's so many nuances that are, that are allowed to be expressed through conversation and just even the interface of, we could all jump on a conference call through like a, you know, phones, but if we can't see each other, that, that takes away a little bit of intimacy. But if we're on video, there's too much because there's like, what's my background look yeah, like? Yeah, Is my yeah. Wi-Fi going to be strong? But if you have that little ability to like, click on someone's profile, see a little bit about them, just see what they look like mm. and know who's speaking when they're speaking. It helps a lot. And um, when I joined, I joined in September last year, 2020. So there was, 
I think it was just when it went a little bit like into the app store because before that it was uh, it was in pro- like private beta on on an app called Tesla. Anyways, that's just getting nerdy. Um, <laughs> it was it was I joined when we were just over ten thousand people on the app, mm-hmm. and now I think there's over twenty million. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, at the time, it was mostly you know the tech bros convos, um, a little bit about like the music industry, this and that. And I joined because a lot of my friends in the music industry were on it. So we were having those convos, but the health convos, it was the same thing we see today. It's a lot of doctors who talk to themselves. They talk to other doctors. Yeah. yeah. Right. And then you have the other side of it where you have people, especially during the pandemic, you have the, the people who are very much anti-vax who are just telling they're, they're they have their own stages. Mm. And then you have people who are talking about like diets or whatnot. So you have a lot of people, but basically they're talking to themselves. Mm. And I always liked hosting very similar to, and one reason why I just absolutely love what you guys do, because it's, it's having conversations with everyone, but it's like now the doctor, you're not a patient because the word patient is a funny one, right? It's, Mm. it's only in context of when you're in their office but now that doctor is a guest in your own living room. Yeah. And it's my editorial voice that will allow for a conversation to be heard. Mm. And the way that I'm able to bring it in, um, I, could, I could say, and I could say this honestly, I'm not just saying it because I'm, uh, I'm, I'm your guest today, but a lot of it, it's, it got tweaked based off of like how I learned from what you guys do. You know, um, it's, it allowed me to better understand how do you still hold these these really heavy topics, uh, which can be heavy, but with a lighthearted nature. And also just mm. with your own voice, man. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, you, you yeah. guys curse all the time. I'm, I'm talking about <laughs> like, I was talking about like, um, you know, for rare disease day, we were, we were talking about rare disease day. It's not, I was, I was randomly dropping Wu-Tang lyrics into yeah, the whole totally. conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and, that, like, and that's like, that's what makes it I mean, so, yeah. that's what makes it so beautiful and, and so important you know, is the accessible is the accessibility part of it and the and the the relatability piece there. And again, like this idea, this notion of 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 sort of amplifying the patient's voice is something that has that I feel has been has been missing for years or or has hasn't really been done correctly. And having having popped onto Clubhouse a number of times now since we had met it's really fascinating to see how it's being used there, how that how that that notion of like pumping up the patient's voice through that app and and seeing how it's done and and it's re- it's really really neat, really cool. And like anybody who isn't familiar with it, I highly suggest, you know, uh checking it out because it it does it does offer quite a quite a uh an environment for for food for thought you know it's it's really it's a really cool it's a really cool app a really cool place to kind of hang out mm. um agreed yeah yeah it and 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 very i mean always fun to be to uh to see and hear anything that that you kind of have your fingers in in on mohit because it's it like we we really do appreciate the work that you do uh we throw it right back Thank at you. you because it's uh it's important it's really important work mm. and uh and yeah, I don't know. I'm just like I again like at the it kind of full circle here. It it having met you a couple of times, but really not having got to to hear where you are coming from, 
I'm just so grateful that we, that this was all pulled together to happen today because um, you do have such an important voice and you you do have so much that you've gone through that is really valuable for folks to hear and to relate to and to think about. And uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for, for everything that you do, but also thank you for, for just sitting down and hanging out with us today because this has been a really, really fun fun conversation yeah and because this is uh our podcast i just want to say you're the fucking best dude yeah yeah and um and you can catch uh, brian a- for his real estate analogy podcast <laughs> yeah yeah right it'll be every wednesday uh, mohit i'm a, i'm yeah i just want to echo jaren and say i'm i'm a big fan of yours mm-hmm. really appreciate you mm-hmm. yeah thanks really thanks for hanging out with us today man this yeah, is really was really, really awesome Absolutely. Thank you guys, honestly. And, uh, you know, the, the last thing I'll say is, you know, what, when we're talking about all this stuff with, with um, when I was a kid and, and everyone used to call me an alien, my favorite thing now is is now. I, I use that in, in such an empowering way. Fuck yeah, I'm an alien. Yeah. You know I mean? Because cause, I thought you were all this say, other shit is so... I thought you were going to say alien. Like, I love... Aliens, like my favorite <laughs> film franchise. <laughs> Coincidentally. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much, Mohit. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Well, there we go. Our little conversation with our new friend, Mohit. And uh, love Mohit. Love what he's up to. Uh, just like, you know, one of those one of those folks where I'm sure, and I'm sure you heard this in the recording, but like if you couldn't, because you can't see his face. You're just talking to someone and you go, God damn it. I wish we could. So nice. So nice. I wish we could be in person. You know, it's like one of those people where you go, I want to be around you. Yeah. And you know what? Maybe um, in the world that exists after this pandemic, we will find ourselves in Toronto and we will be in person with Mohead. I'm sure. I highly doubt it. There's another pandemic just around the corner. Wow. Um, well, folks, we appreciate you and everything that you do for us. In particular, the way that you tune into this podcast every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday uh, at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or the CBC Listen app or whatever the friggin' app is that you use to listen to the show. And most of those platforms come with a place where you can hit a button that says something like like or follow or subscribe or whatever the fuck. So do that and then rate it and review it if you can. And if you can't, just open your window and to the next person walking by, just give them your thoughts on this show Mm -hmm. and force your opinions on them and tell them, what they need to do, which is exactly what I told you to do right now. Yeah. And then get them to teach you how to do something so incredibly fucking simple, like rating and reviewing a goddamn podcast. Oh my God. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, oh, another big thanks to our patrons. Cause we love you guys more than anyone. you guys are just the sweetest little potatoes. Mm-hmm. If you've got some thoughts that you'd like to share with us, some fan mail, some, some, some super hardcore, harsh criticism, um, something that we could learn, um, something that we don't know, something that we said that's completely wrong or something that we said that's completely right. And you want to give us a little pat on the back. You can send that to letters at sickboypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you want to be a guest on the show, you can go to sickboypodcast.com slash contact, fill out the form, come on the show. Uh, this, because Brian's not here, I'm going to do what he does, which is basically okay. say the podcast is brought to you by mm. him, me, 
you, mm-hmm. Lauren, uh-huh. also not here, uh, Jeff, our manager, uh, Donovan over on PEI, he takes all the audio. Literally never here. Fucking never here, but f- somehow mixes this shit up and edits it and, and all that stuff, mm-hmm. makes it sound good. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a couple of dopes from over in Dartmouth there put the music together. They're called Take Part. They're no longer a band. Don't bother looking them up. It's too hard. But if you do try, they're probably on Bandcamp. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. Uh, honestly, like if you bought their music, I have no idea who gets that money. Probably not worth it. Uh, you can probably pirate it. Go to Napster.com and look up Take Part the Band. Uh, uh, pirate their mm-hmm. music. Um, Napster. Just Napster. Pirate mm-hmm. their music. Mm-hmm. Is Napster still a thing? I don't know. I feel like Metallica would just put them under. Go to Pirate Bay. Yeah, get, do LimeWire. LimeWire is worth that. I prefer BearShare. Yeah, right. Uh, all right, folks, that is it for this week. I'm Brian and Taylor. And I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Work. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.